If you haven't turned there already, please turn your Bibles to that little book of Nahum. And as Mike just mentioned, it's on page 782 of the Pew Bible there. This little book called Nahum, which is named after the prophet who wrote it, holds a big message for the people of God, the people of Israel, and for even us today as Christians who are waiting for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So today as we look into this little book, we want to catch a glimpse of Nahum's message this morning. We want to receive the the blessing that God intends for us. And I think the the point, and we're going to flesh this out a little bit very quickly at the beginning, is that we are called and, and God desires for us to receive comfort from this small book of Nahum. To realize that and to know that evil and wickedness in this world will be crushed. And our sovereign, almighty, powerful creator God will rule and reign in righteousness. So that's where we're headed. But before we begin and look in the text, let's pray together and seek our Father's blessing. So, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would open our eyes to see that as we look into your word, we know that we are seeking to be spiritually nourished by you. We are looking to find comfort from your holy love this morning. We are looking to be challenged and to be called to turn away from sin and wickedness in our own lives. So, Father, we ask that you would indeed pour out your spirit and and let your spirit to to open our eyes and to change our hearts and cause us to respond to your grace and your mercy that we hear of this morning and that in humility and faith, we as your people would look to you. Father, I do pray that if there's someone here this morning, and I assume that there is, that has not yet tasted of your goodness and your mercy, that they would hear of your judgment and your wrath this morning against wickedness and against sin in this world, and they would be compelled by your kindness to turn and to repent and to find life and joy in Christ alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We as a culture love to see the bad guy lose and the good guy win don't we? We love to see in our stories the triumph of good over evil. And and if you're from a previous generation, you know the sort of the motif as the old Western comes on and into town rides the sheriff, maybe John Wayne, with the white hat on. And the villain with the black hat, you know his days are numbered. We love it to see when the nice guy gets the good girl and the jerk gets kicked to the curb. It's an interesting phenomenon in our society, is it not? I think especially here in our American culture. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if you've ever been to a a movie and you're watching and there's a corporate response to this turn or the climax or resolution of the movie of the story. I don't know if you've been in a situation like that. I, there was one time that I was, and I can't remember which movie it was. It, it might have been when the Death Star and the power of the Empire was finally destroyed. 
and the Rebel Alliance wins in the galaxy, all across the galaxy, there's this dancing and cheering and revelry that the Empire has been brought to its knees. As fictional as that might be, you know, the crowd responds. I'm not sure if it was that one, or maybe it was the one when I was sitting there and the Ring of Power is finally destroyed. And the Dark Riders and Dark Lords Sauron and Sauron and the unrelenting destruction of the orcs are finally stopped. I can't remember when it was, but the audience clapped. Hundreds of people around. I have no idea who you people are, and yet we're clapping at a movie screen because we're seeing the Death Star and the powers of wickedness crushed. There's something that deeply resonates with us, right? Because even though these stories are fictional, they capture a very real reality in our world. Some of you have experienced this. Some of you know what it's like when the forces of Nazi and fascist powers are finally stopped. As a child, you might remember the parades and the rejoicing. These forces are finally halted, at least for a time. See, we live in a world that's ravaged by sin and evil, wicked and violent people, tyrants, narcissistic emperors and politicians. We live in a world where teenagers and college students and disgruntled employees brutally murder people simply because they don't like them or they felt like they were treated unfairly. We live in a world where some men and women use their creative abilities and their intellectual brilliance not to bring peace to the nations or to people, but rather to destroy. Instead of solving problems of engineering and science and farming and a business, rather these people use their gifts to create unrest and distrust and cause problems and destroy lives and bring terror and destruction and to rob from businesses and destroy them. We see this all around us, right? We see how people, instead of imitating their creator God, instead of nourishing and cherishing life, seek to destroy life and exploit others and to spill innocent blood. Why? So that they can grow in power, so they can grow in wealth, so they can grow in might. Thankfully, that's not all of our human experience, though, right? But this is a reality. And I think it was a grace this morning that... um, my wife left the windows open last night as we went to sleep, and so this morning I woke up to this beautiful chirping of birds enjoying the spring day. We are in spring. We have this tension of how around us there is a sense where life is flourishing and all the while evil and wickedness seems to go on. It's ravaged by sin. So the people of Judah here in Nahum, Nahum writes to them specifically. And by extension, he writes to all of the people of Israel. But here in Nahum, in Nahum's day, in, in Judah's day, the Assyrians were this face of evil and the face of wickedness. They were brutal, violent people. And in some ways, it actually appears that, that every nation of the world hated them. Every nation in the world seemed to hate them for their pride and their arrogance and their evil. And I I really don't think this is an overstatement. Why? Because look at the end of of the book, this little book of Nahum, the end of chapter 3. And look how this book ends. 
in verse, chapter 3, verse 19, in the second half. Here's, here's the divine perspective that Nahum speaks. He writes this, All who hear the news about you, the, the news of the destruction that, that Nahum's going to unpack, all who hear the news about you, they clap their hands. They rejoice. All. Why? For upon whom? Who is there in the world who has not come under your unceasing evil? Man, would you like to be a part of the nation that's hated by the world for its pride, arrogance, violence, and destruction of other nations? So today we might have different names, different faces and nations that are attached to this blatant sin and wickedness around us. And I would even say that there's probably some people and nations and rulers that today, if if they were destroyed, if they were brought down, if news of their murder or death were to hit the news feed this morning, that in many ways the nations of the world would rejoice. They recognize their evil and wickedness. But this little book, Nahum, deals with some very big questions and has a very big message for the people of God. Here are some of the questions that we still wrestle with today. Here's the first one. Does does God care? Does God care when his people are oppressed by wicked and evil people or nations? Does God care when the innocent are killed? All we have to do is go back to the book of Jonah, right? In fact, it's interesting. You flip back there with me just real quickly since Nahum is the sequel to the book of Jonah. Both of these books end with questions. Both these books end with questions. And here's the question at the end of the book of Jonah in chapter 4, verse 11. God asks Jonah, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, that is, these innocents, and the cattle? What have the cattle done to deserve destruction? So here's the question that Nahum, the book of Nahum asks, does God care when God's people are oppressed? The second question is this, will God intervene? First of all, God, do you really, do you see, do you care? And will you intervene, God? Will you intervene on our behalf? And the third question is this, will there be an end in this world to the cycle of evil and wickedness that we face? Because sometimes we, we go about our day and it seems to be all that's on the news feed is a cycle of evil and wickedness and death and murder and tragedy. So in these three chapters, Nahum answers these questions for the people of God. He does it in an astounding way, in a way that even to our 21st century minds can be a challenge because it confronts us with a God that we're not used to seeing. I will say that not all of your questions are going to be answered about the problem of evil from this little book. That's why we have Jonah. That's why we have Habakkuk next week and the book of Job. But there's, a very important, there's some very important truths that Nahum teaches us about God and about how he's at work in the world today that we must grasp as his people if we are truly going to find comfort in this God who is our creator and our Lord. So here are these three ideas that correspond to these three questions. First of all, God 
does care. And here's how it's expressed. God has a holy love for his people. Will, God, will you intervene? Yes, he will, but, but he has patience toward sinful humanity as well. And third, will there be an end to this cycle? And the answer, of course, is yes. God will bring his decisive judgment against sin and sinful humanity. So as we look at Naaman, look at chapter 1, verse 1, and we see the topic, we see the subject of this book. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Nahum's topic is the Assyrians, the capital of which is Nineveh. The Assyrians deserve destruction as the unrepentant enemies of God and God's people. They go, well, what happened, what happened to the book of Jonah? What happened to the, the mercy and the pity of God through the ministry of Jonah? What about this great revival that Steve taught us about several weeks ago? Well, that was about a hundred years before Nahum. It's a new generation. It's a new people. It's a people who has forgotten the mercy of God. Here's a snippet of what these people have become. One king named Ashurbanipal boasted in the following about some people who were plotting to dethrone him. He writes this, As for those common men who had spoken derogatory things against my god Asher and had plotted against me, the prince who reveres him, I tore out their tongues and abased them. As a posthumous offering, I smashed the rest of the people alive by the very figures of their protective deities between which they had smashed Sennacherib, my grandfather. I cut up their flesh, and their cut-up flesh I fed to the dogs, swine, jackals, birds, vultures, to the birds of the sky, and to the fish of the deep pools. Their king wrote that. Here's a commentary. The Assyrians were the ones who had destroyed Samaria, in 722 B.C., and with it the northern kingdom of Israel. So in 2 Kings, chapter 17, here's what 2 Kings says about Assyria. The king of Assyria laid siege to it for three years. So we can imagine as the people are in the city of Samaria, they're besieged and they're without food and water. They're growing in hunger. They're growing more desperate and more hopeless. And as they look out on the Assyrian army, which looks invincible, and they know that the soldiers are completely ruthless, that if they came into the city, they would flay people alive, strip the skin off them, and drag them off with hooks in their flesh. And if the people didn't know this already, they would come to the wall and remind them of this regularly. This is the kind of people the Assyrians were as they crushed and oppressed the people of God. Now, it's, it's into this situation where... Judah and Israel. Israel's fallen and Judah's on the brink of falling. Feeling the, as it were, the breath of the lion of Assyria breathing down their necks. It's this that Nahum speaks. Into this situation where Nahum speaks and he says this. The judgment of God. The judgment of God will fall on the enemies of God. If you're taking notes this morning, there's going to be two parts to my proposition for us. That's the first one. The enemies of God will fall. Or excuse me, the judgment of God will fall on the enemies of God. So Nahum's message comes like this. 
as a sequel to Jonah, and it's a necessary one, if Jonah's theological message is, God will show mercy to all who repent. And Jonah really struggles with that, remember? He got angry. He wanted to die. He didn't want to go to Nineveh and explain this God or, or pronounce a message of hope to them because he knew that this was the kind of God that God was, who shows mercy to those who repent. But the clear message of Nahum is the counterbalance to this. God's judgment and righteous vengeance will fall on all God's enemies, especially those who forget the mercy of God. So, Nineveh will be destroyed. But remember this, that who's the audience? In Nahum 1, verse 1, he says this is, the topic is Nineveh. It's about Nineveh, but, but who's the audience? Nahum hasn't been called to go to Nineveh. Nahum is called to the people of God. The audience is the people of God. Nahum is pronouncing the judgment of God against their enemy. But those who are hearing, those who are listening, are the very people of God. And, and so as we understand that, we learn that his purpose, his focus, is to bring comfort to the people of God. This is wrapped up in, up in his name. Nahum's name is the only time it's used of, a, of an individual, and it means the comfort and consolation But how is this comfort and consolation brought? It's brought when God takes vengeance on his enemies. Did you know that this is the kind of God that we worship? Do you understand that God will bring comfort to his people by bringing vengeance on his enemies? By crushing those who oppose him. By crushing and destroying those who oppress his people. Here's the effect of Nahum then for us. Those who resist this God are called to repent. It's a secondary theme. And there might be some righteous people in Assyria who still remember the days of Jonah, who still remember this great revival. And they might catch wind of this judgment that's come and they might call their nation to repent. But the main focus is this, that those people of God who are under the oppression, who are facing the wrath and fury of Assyria, this brutal and violent nation, the message to them is trust in me, God says. Verse 7, as Mike read it this morning, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Nahum is calling the people of God to find comfort in their God. He has not abandoned them. He has not left them alone. He sees, he knows, he cares. So does God care when his people are oppressed by wicked men? The answer to that is yes course. Look in chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, and this really sets the tone for us for the whole book. Because here's our tendency. Our tendency is to think, see, we're, we're the good guys, and those who are mean to us are the bad guys. But that's not the, that's not the logic that God uses. 
That's not the logic that Nahum uses. Nahum goes back to something that is better, more sufficient, more logical, more compelling. And it is the very character of who this God is. In many ways, there is no call to the people of God to do anything. The people of God are not called to rise up and to revolt and to throw off the Assyrian power. No. They're simply called to trust in the character of God. And here is how the character of God is revealed in verse 2 of chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. second part of that, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And it's as if verse 2 seeks to remind us as the people of God of who this God is. He's a jealous God. An avenging God. And we hold that intention with verse 3 that he's also slow, though, to his anger. And where where have we heard this before? Where have the people of God heard this before? Do you remember? Way back in Exodus. Way back in Exodus, as as God delivers them and ransoms them from the slavery and the oppression of the people of Egypt, he draws them out and he brings them out into the wilderness. And and Moses is up on the mountain and, and receiving this revelation from God. And all the while, the people are down. And they're doing what? They're building this golden calf. And the people fail to acknowledge and worship this God who has delivered them. And instead they create, they build this golden calf and they worship it. They fall down and they revel in it. This idolatry. And God responds by revealing himself to them. And this is how he responds. He says, I am a jealous God. I will not have any competition. People fail to acknowledge him and his power. But God says, I will have no rivals. I've redeemed you. I have brought you out of slavery of Egypt. I have freed you from their bonds, from their coils. I've liberated you. Worship me. And in that context, God reveals himself to them. He says, I'm a jealous God, and I'm slow to anger with you. I will be patient with you. I will draw you to myself, but don't take that for granted. For God's judgment will fall on his own people who return away as well as on his enemies. He's slow in anger, but he's great in power. In fact, this, this theme, right, is repeated in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Peter writes this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. That is the people of God. He's patient towards you, not not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. This is a warning. Just like in Nahum and to us this present day, the Lord is not slow, but He is patient. Why? Because He is a God of redemption. 
And so in the, in the realm of redemption, he is patient with sinful humanity. He is patient with wicked men and nations. Why? Because he is a God of redemption. But he is jealous, and he will respond, and he will act in his time and his way. So don't forget it, Nahum says. And we as God's people are called to trust that. The result of this character that he is jealous and avenging, because he's the creator God and the redeeming God, so he's jealous of his people that he's created, and he's jealous of the people that he's redeemed, he's called out for himself. And he's slow to anger against the wicked and vile people of this world, and he's great in power. And the result of that is this, the last statement of verse 3, he will by no means clear the guilty. Don't, Don't misjudge this God. Don't misjudge his patience with wicked and vile men as just sort of looking over and covering over sin. No, he will judge the guilty. And in the midst of this, at the end of this, this is where the good news, this is where the hope comes in, so to speak, in verses 7 and 8. Again, the Lord is good to his people a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And wrapped up with that is this promise. But, but with the overwhelming flood. Remember the flood of Genesis? And Peter even uses the same imagery of the flood of God's judgment. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Total destruction. So the holy love of God is revealed to his people. And Nahum uses that to appeal and to plead with the people. I know you're in difficulty. I know you're being oppressed. But continue to trust in this holy God who loves you and is jealous for you. At the same time, we recognize this, right? This has been 90 years after the Assyrians have invaded. It's going to be at least probably another 20 or 30 years before Babylon comes in and destroys the Assyrians. And then after that, the Babylonians are going to take Judah and these rulers into captivity to their nation. We ask, where is the hope in this, right? So here's the cycle that that we have to understand that God is at work even when it doesn't look like it. Even when it seems that God is silent and absent and slow and powerless, We cannot misjudge him as his people. When it seems that the enemies of God are too powerful and too strong and too overwhelming and that that we can't stand, when it seems like there's no end to this cycle, when there is no freedom from wickedness and sin and slavery, when it seems like there's no liberation from the bondage of abusive and wicked people, and even in our own lives, when we feel like there's no escape from our sin, that indwells us and that holds us captive and that we fall into time and time again, we must remember the character of God. God is grieved over wickedness and he is full of holy, jealous love for his people. So that first part is that the judgment of God falls on the enemies of God. The second part of this is is the one that's full of hope. While the judgment of God falls, the love of God comforts the people of God. While while the judgment of God falls on the enemies of God, the love of God comforts the people of God. And these two things go together. 
And so it brings us to our next question. So will God intervene? Will God intervene? And Nahum answers yes. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. He asks several questions. Who can stand before his indignation, the indignation of God? Who can endure the heart of his anger? What, and what's the implied answer? Who can stand? Who can endure? No one. No one. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Yes, this is a metaphor, but it's also indicating the kind of destruction that's going to come to Nineveh as Babylon comes, comes in. And even as you read, how the, the idols are crushed. Their stone images are beaten down. These things that they worship as gods are no gods at all. And God demonstrates that by allowing another nation to come in and destroy them. Verse 8. Will God intervene? Will God intervene with an overwhelming flood? He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble, fully dry. They're, they're burnt up. Verse 11, this against Nineveh. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, and he was a worthless counselor. Verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, right? Because that's their immediate situation. Judah looks around. Nineveh, Assyria is still in power. They're still at the peak of their authority and dominion in the world. The Lord says, though they're at full strength and many, they will cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. I'm going to provide deliverance. I'm going to provide a way of escape. Now, and you know their history. That doesn't look like the way that we would have done it. Their deliverance came through another nation. Here's the hope, though, in verse 13. And now I will break this yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. And if you look back, you say, here's the emphasis of this this text. Will God intervene? And the overwhelming emphasis is God says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. God himself will intervene. I, he says, will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Now, in chapter 2, let's look there real quickly. Verse 13. We read some of the most bone-chilling words that a person could ever read or hear. Chapter 2, verse 13. Here's what God says against Nineveh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I would just say, I never want to be on the end, the receiving end of these words. The holy God, the creator God, the Lord of the host of angel armies. I never want to hear those words. I am against you. Will God intervene for his people? Yes. And how will he do it? He will do it himself. He is against the enemies and the oppressors of God's people. We could go on. There's chapter 2 and chapter 3 are just full of text that, that illustrate this. And um, 
the woes continue in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Woe to this bloody city, all full of lies and plunders. There's no end to the prey in you. Verse 5 of chapter 3. Behold, I am against you. Again, he says it. And with this repetition of theme, we understand that there's no relief for them. The destruction of God is sure on the people of Nineveh. I'm against you, declares the Lord, verse 5, and I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Verse 7, all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? There will be none. There are no comforters for Nineveh. There is no one to grieve the destruction of such a violent, oppressive nation. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? And the nations clap. Nineveh's crushed. Now, here's the most amazing thing. Go back to chapter 1. This is good news for the people of God. Do we, think it, do we think of the gospel, this side of the gospel, the destruction of God's enemies, the, the destruction of wickedness and evil as a part of the gospel, the good news? Brothers and sisters, we need to. We must think of this as a part of the gospel. God's judgment on evil and wickedness and sin in this world is a, an essential part of the good news of, of Jesus Christ. So look in, look in verse um, Let's see, verse 13. And now I'll break this yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved images and metal, metal images. I will make your grave for your vile. He's going to bring total destruction on them. Verse 15. So, behold, look upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Start to celebrate. Why? Because the victory's here. The victory is at hand. The victory is nigh. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And Nahum says, this is good news for the people of God, that he will crush wickedness. He will destroy evil in its national form and in its personal form and in its cosmic form of sin and Satan. And we look as believers to the New Testament and we ask this question, so when will this cycle end, right? And we look to the cross of Christ and we see that throughout history, history has continued to repeat itself and wickedness and evil men and sin continues to grow as a cancer. And finally we come to the good news of the gospel in Christ where he came to the cross to uproot the power of sin and wickedness and evil. He came to disarm the powers of wickedness and darkness. He came to transfer people that were caught in the slavery of sin and the dominion of power and transfer them into his own kingdom, the kingdom of light and life, to give them life and righteousness and hope in Christ. We see this all throughout the New Testament. And we look to Christ and we see that that in him, this, this root cause of all the wickedness and evil and oppression against God's people for all time and eternity is found in sin. And sin is the problem that needs to be destroyed. Sin is the ultimate slave master that needs to be 
cut off and our bonds broken of the people of God to hold us down and crush us. So we look at Christ. And we say, look, see, see what God has done in Christ? In fact, some of the same imagery, the same language where Nahum says to Nineveh, you're going to be like drunk men falling under the wrath of God. You're not even going to know what hits you. So Christ in the garden prays to his Father, Lord, Father, would you take this cup from me? And what is this cup? It is the cup that's full of the wrath of God against sin and wickedness. And Jesus cries out, not my will, but yours be done. And so we look at the text in Luke and in the other Gospels and we say, look, see how he drank the cup of the wrath of God against us. And he drank it for us. See how God is intervening, how God himself is is breaking the power of sin and wickedness and evil in this world. See his holy love on display as he decisively crushes the powers of wickedness and darkness, as he breaks the cycle of sin in our lives and in this world. Look to Revelation 19 as, as Jesus will return and he will come with a flaming sword in his mouth to make war on all who reject him. See how all the nations are brought under his control. See how the cycle of history, whether it's the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans or any other nation throughout history, the cycle just continues of wicked nations and wicked people are finally brought under the total dominion and control of the kingdom of God as Jesus Christ reigns as Lord over all. See, look, that God himself has stepped in. That God himself is breaking the coils of evil and sin with his amazing love. See how he breaks the yoke of slavery to sin with his jealous power for his people. See how he protects and comforts his people through oppressive nations and oppressive individuals. When we face persecution, there's comfort. So we studied Second Peter. We studied First Peter recently. And that was a theme over and over again. Stand firm in grace. Endure in the face of opposition. Why? Because your God loves you. And Christ is giving you an example to follow. Look and see how in our own lives as we're convicted by sin and we feel the pull and the weight of sin in our lives that there's hope. In fact, our hymn writers, they write this theme over and over and over again. In fact, we're going to finish today by singing one of those at the end. Amazing grace. Look at this mercy. Look at this grace that frees us, that liberates us from the power of sin and slavery. And yet we wait. We daily struggle with sin. We, we daily struggle with wicked men and wicked people around us. We daily see the, the effects on us and on our world, and we wait. Just like the people of Judah and just like the people of Israel had to wait. And here's the response. Nahum cries out to us. Here's an invitation to us. Nahum 1, verse 7. 
trust. The Lord is good. Trust. Take refuge in him. Even when it seems like you cannot stand. Even when it seems like evil is overwhelming. Take refuge in the stronghold of your God. For he will deliver. He will pour out his judgment on his enemies. And as such, we will experience the holy love and the comfort of our God.